Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 1402, set to be released for the week of Monday, March 7th, 2022. I say that very specifically and will mention straight away that today's recording date of this episode is March 5th, 2022 at 9pm Eastern Daylight Saving Time. Because of all the events that are going on that we will be discussing in this episode, there is so much that is changing by the minute, and we just want to note that everything that we are discussing is accurate as of said recording time. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's introduce everyone that's here. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulloch. Welcome, Gene. Thanks, Sawyer. This is going to be a very interesting and, alas, sad episode, uh, but we will get through this and uh, talk about what is, uh, what's been going on of late. Yes, there is a lot to get to. Uh, welcome as well, Dr. Kat Robinson. Lovely to be here. As Jean says, we've got a lot of heavy things to deal with this episode, but um, looking forward to getting into it with all of you. Same, and welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hi, everybody. Good to be here. So, obviously, if you are following current events, you're aware of the current uh, situation as Russia invades Ukraine. Uh, obviously, there are so many people on the ground that are being impacted there right now, people whose lives are being completely upended. And I do want to say right off the beginning, our thoughts are with all of them, and we support the people of Ukraine. Indeed. As we say that, there is also some serious, significant impacts that this is also having on every single space agency pretty much across the globe right now, too. And while this is a war that is mainly being fought on the ground, space is being used as a tool in it as well. So want to use this episode to address everything that is going on uh, with Russia and what that means for spaceflight and spaceflight cooperation and the future of spaceflight for all spacefaring nations, essentially, because this is having global ramifications there as well. And a lot of it starts right now with the head of the Russian space agency, Roscosmos. Uh, he is a very outspoken man, to say the least. Uh, for those who don't know, his name is Dmitry Rogozin. And since everything has started, he has been sending out a series of dramatic tweets, uh, basically threatening the Russian involvement with the International Space Station. And again, a reminder, the ISS is split up into two segments. There is the U.S. side, which is the U.S. plus 14 other partner nations. And then there is the Russian segment as well. While they are two separate segments, many times the crew members on board do share. They will go to each other's sides. There are joint experiments that are typically performed. And uh, right now there are major threats to that cooperation and to the future of the International Space Station. Uh, 
I'm not even sure how we start with the threats that he has made, including, uh, I think, obviously, the biggest thing that he has discussed right now with the cooperation on board the ISS is the fact that when it comes to attitude control, basically, there is still drag pulling down on the space station, bringing it towards the Earth. And so adjustments need to be done by firing thrusters to boost the orbit. That is traditionally and typically done on the Russian side. And his main threat in his first set of tweets sent back on February 24th and 25th basically claims that if there is no cooperation between them, that the ISS could fall and crash possibly on top of populated areas in the United States, India, China, Europe, and so on. I think let's start there. And then there's so much more that he has said that we need to address in regards to the space station. Well, even before, sir, we dive into this, I think both, uh, it should be noted that I think both the uh, Roscosmos webs, the Roscosmos Twitter feed and Mr. Rogozin's Twitter feed have basically turned into a propaganda channel for an audience of one. And what I'm, I'm just going to throw that out there right from the start, because I think that's what really, really stem, this stems from. And but uh, to to dive into to what's been going on. First off, yes, indeed, the the Russian segment does control some of the propulsion. It should be noted, however, that and I believe we noted this at during our last program. Um, we did launch uh, the Cygnus spacecraft uh, not too long ago. Cygnus does have the ability to go ahead and reboost the ISS. It's already been tested before, just uh, on on a lark, and now this is this is going to be a um, an actual. You know, Cygnus is given the the chance to go ahead and and perform a reboost. So, you know, there are other there are other avenues to do that. Plus I'm sure that um, both SpaceX uh, have also been talked, you know, they're also talking to SpaceX to yeah, I would see say if that they can perform is, a reboost. Go ahead, Kat, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no worries. I was just going to jump in and say, this is probably one of the, um, the threats that has been made that has the least amount of teeth and is mm-hmm. the most fixable just because of the redundancy and the amount of vehicles that can actually visit uh, the station. Yeah, so, I agree. Yeah, I mean that—that that, that is th- the other thing too. Is you know he's also threatening to take his ball and go home. I mean there was just one uh, video today that was put out by I guess some one of the Russian news agencies and uh, Mr. Rogozin that basically it's a parody, you know, showing the uh, the the Russian segment going its own way and the U.S. segment kind of dropping off. Um, the, that. This is just accelerating a timeline for something that was already going to happen. Yeah. Because the, you know, of course it's, it's not great because, you know, having to bring things forward is it's never easy in an environment where there's international partners and, you know, complex funding structures, complex operational structures. But, um, Russia has, has been signaling its interest to leave the ISS for quite some time, um, for many reasons. Um, and we'll, probably get into some of those as we get a little further into this episode. But this is, you know, of everything that we're going to talk about today, um, I would say that this particular one is is the most 
fixable <laughs> compared to some of the other things that are going on. But it's just, you know, it's just very frustrating to see something that has stood as a symbol of international cooperation through uh, through many things, including conflicts. You know, there were similar threats uh, of this nature in 2014 with the invasion of the Crimea area in Ukraine. Um, but it's just, you know, it's sad to see something that highlights what we can do together as humanity get drug into sort of the worst we can do to each other as humans. Yeah. I mean, the whole concept that space unites is basically being tested like it's never been before during in under these circumstances. Uh, but again, as, as you pointed out, Kat, this is also quite fixable because the other problem on, on the, the Russians would have more of a problem than we would. The reason why is we supply the power for the entire facility. Uh, and without that, and if Russia decides to go ahead and go their own way, they've got no way of powering that segment on their own unless they go ahead and you know fit it with, with other things. And that's going to cost money, and that's money right now they don't have. So the idea is, what do you do? You know, I mean, they're they're more dependent on the systems than we are, and the whole point I think is they ultimately lose in in this whole picture. Yeah, I think that there are some overarching concerns though that sort of go beyond. I mean, obviously, overarching concerns that go beyond the ISS um, as we get less international cooperation in space in some arenas. And, and this is something that's been going on for some time as we do worry what happens if we over-militarize space or over-nationalize space, what happens? Uh, because the truth is, is that our everyday life depends on assets that are in space. And those assets are vulnerable to attack from, from adversaries. And, you know, if, a conflict were to bleed over from terrestrial into the extraterrestrial environment, um, that could have serious impacts for, you know, not just the nations involved, but the, the entire world because of how dependent we are as a society on space technology and space hardware. Yeah. I mean, we're already seeing how intertwined things are because of everything that's falling apart. And we're going to be getting into some of that, that later on in in this program. Uh, one thing, though, that I am going to point out, and it's something that uh, uh, Kathy Leaders uh, over at NASA had pointed out, too, that since the conflict has broken out, uh, none of the flight controllers involved, and that includes the folks over in Korolev, have behaved in any other manner under them other than professional everybody seems to be laser focused on keeping the vehicle going and keeping the crews alive and happy and, and making sure that they're able to to do their jobs effectively so um i'm going to applaud everybody along the line including the folks over in Kor korolev to go ahead and make let them everybody know that you know everybody down here really really appreciates the fact that that the professional stances is still there. Um, yeah. And it's we just do a reminder also, that, we should, oh, go ahead, Sawyer. I was going to say, it's also important to point out that the U.S. still buys seats on Russian Soyuz, and astronaut Mark Vandehei, who is aboard the International Space Station right now, is scheduled to come home on board 
a Russian Soyuz into Kazakhstan. So, and as of right now, uh, NASA has said the plan is still to bring him home on the Soyuz with two other Russian cosmonauts. But that's another thing in terms of that joint cooperation is there's the joint cooperation, obviously, between the two mission control centers. And there also has to be that joint cooperation between the astronauts and the cosmonauts, in particular when it comes to getting them home safely. And I know at one point there was a plan to fly cosmonauts eventually aboard the uh, Crew Dragon, whether There's that will happen. Is, uh, yeah, yeah what, right. Purchase. Crew 5. Right. Whether that will stay, the case is yet to be seen, but that's currently the plan. So there still is some cooperation, but yeah. No, I agree. I was going to say, I think that this was sort of the point that, that you just rose and the point that Gene made that um, that is a good reminder that when conflicts happen, there's often a difference between the people leading those conflicts and the people who are on the ground, uh, you know, whether that's Russian soldiers or uh, people working on the ISS or, you know, we can't we can't equate every single person or even organization within Russia with Putin. Um, there's a, a, you know, complex history and, and uh, between the two, but it's important to remember that, you know, that at the end of the day, there are people who were behind all of these missions who want their mission to succeed, regardless of what political, the political environment might be. Yeah. And well, and things hopefully will continue to go along that, that line. Although, um, I do recall because I sat in on the uh, the NASA advisory council meeting, which occurred this week, and Wayne Hale was saying during his presentation that you know, he he was applauding everybody along the line for their their work um, in under these circumstances, which have just been extraordinary. But he also indicated that maybe just in case uh, a Tiger team should be assembled in the event that you know, that kind of cooperation gets pulled um, by the higher ops. And And we're already seeing some signs of that starting, considering just a few days ago, Russia said that it is canceling joint scientific experiments on the ISS with Germany in response to the sanctions, with them saying on Twitter, quote, the state corporation will not cooperate with Germany on joint experiments on the Russian segment of the ISS. Roscosmos will conduct them independently. The Russian space program will be adjusted against the backdrop of sanctions. The priority will be the creation of satellites in the interests of defense. I think also, too, that was in response to uh, DLR saying that they were also withdrawing some some kind of uh, – some sort of activity as well. There with, was a, with- uh, a Russian-built experiment, I believe, that was on board a telescope of theirs. That's right. They Germany powered it down. It, yeah, Germany turned it off on their black hole searching – uh, right. Telescope, which uh, that, I, I think I think we're that was the uh, the Spectre RG uh, telescope that uh, Russia has, and they decided to uh, power that uh, to put that. Uh, uh, the Germans decided to put their uh, experiment into safe mode, not yeah, turn it E-Ros- off. Erosita. Yes, thank you. Then not turn it off, but put it into safe mode until things kind of calm down. Yes, and so, the Russians are saying they're still going to charge Germany for all the time, even if it's in safe mode. Yeah. 
so but we there are that's why i see why it's important that you know wayne hale addressing some kind of a tiger team because yes there is still joint cooperation in keeping all of the astronauts alive and safe and healthy thank god but the cooperation for everything else on board the space station is on very very thin ice and if it's one thing we've learned from space is that the necessity of redundancy yeah, and I think that's what Wayne Hale is getting at. Just in case, you know, things don't, uh, don't can, just in case things just hit the fan a little harder than anticipated, we should be ready. Right. And along the lines of redundancy, that brings up another issue that comes with the Russian space program. And that was the announcement that they will stop selling Russian made rocket engines to the United States. And there are currently two companies that use. The Russian built engines that would be United Launch Alliance with the RD 180, as well as North of Grumman with their Antares, which is the RD 181 engines. And that also kind of relates back to what we were just talking about with the ability to boost the space station with Cygnus, which launches on Antares. Yeah. And I mean, um, ULA is in better shape out out of the two. Uh, Antares. They've got some, Northrop Grumman may have some decisions to make, but um, let's first take a look at uh, United Launch Alliance and how it, it may impact them. Um, Tori Bruno, I think, put out a, a, a post on Twitter a couple of days ago, basically saying that, you know, we, we kind of thought ahead and we've basically bought pretty much all the RD-180s. They're going to need to fly out Atlas V. As, as you know, Atlas V is going to be sunsetted in favor of the the Vulcan booster. Uh, I believe it has, I don't know, sorry, how many flights it has left, something like 20. I believe it's scheduled to fly for at least four more years in terms of number of flights. Right. Um, but uh, after, you know, pretty much uh, Atlas V's days are, are unfortunately numbered. It's going to be sad to see that, uh, that booster go. But uh, they do have enough... Uh, RD-180 engines to fly out what they have left of uh, of the uh, uh, Atlas V, and uh, they won't have factory support, but they probably know enough about that engine to, uh, uh, they may actually know more about that engine than its designers do because they've been flying it so long. So I- I'm not too sure how this is really going to impact them at all. Um, since they are pretty much squared away with, with the RD-180. And a reminder that the plan, once they switch over to Vulcan, is to use the BE-4 engines, which are built by Blue Origin here in the United States. And while that has been much delayed, that is still the plan, is to eventually end reliance upon Russian engines anyway for ULA. Right, and that was due to a kerfuffle that we went through uh, was about a year, about two, three years ago, with um, the idea of buying Russian engines in the first place, and we had to go through the whole history of why that was occurring. And I'm, if folks are interested, they can find that program. But we're not going to go through through that here on 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 this on this uh, edition. Although I will uh, say one comment on that is that glad that there's another reason to pressure Blue Origin to deliver. Oh yeah! Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> so oh I mean, yeah, you gotta. 
I mean, situations like this, I mean, we're talking about space assets and things lost, but, you know, we do recognize that there are things that are more precious than what we're talking about that have been lost and, you know, the people's lives and homes. I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking, of course. So we recognize that. But when we talk about this, you know, there are some things that, um, that will happen. This is going to put pressure on Blue Origin to deliver, um, which if you want to go back and listen to that episode, you can hear all of our, our thoughts and opinions on that. But um, certainly this, this will be um, a motivating factor for them. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Kat. And I'm, I'm sure, too, that uh, Tori Bruno, if he hasn't already kind of lit a fire under them, that fire has just been turned up a few notches. Uh, but uh, uh, again, I think United Launch Alliance is in a pretty good posture at this point. They're going to be fine. The other side of the coin, well, it's a little bit more grim. Um if memory serves, during the pre-flight uh, press conference for the NG-17 uh, flight uh, for Cygnus, um, Kurt Eberle was asked um, the question of the availability of, you know, Antares and, and uh, uh, engines that they had on, on hand. And uh, Kurt Eberle is the... Uh, um, I believe his, his title is, uh, well, he's the program man- manager for Antares, uh, indicated that they have enough uh, fabrication for Antares through NG-19. Now that puts them to, uh, I believe it's April of 23. So that's that theoretically if things don't pan out the way you know they should they should or or you know Antares availability and parts availability is is bad because again we're not going to be importing the RD um, 191 engine that Antares uses but on another part of Antares as well this is the core stage um, that core stage also comes from Ukraine. So essentially, without either the engine or the core stage, Antares, as we know it, is basically shot. The other thing, too, is if the embargoes on these engines stay, and I think this likely, Antares doesn't have an engine. No matter what, really, if if we could find another fabricator for the core stage or the first stage, okay, we might be able to pull that off. But Antares does not have an engine after that. And some people, and I've been watching on Twitter too, and I've been engaging in some conversations. I've been talking about the AR-1 from uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne. That engine, from what I understand, uh is there's a prototype in existence. They do have one. They finished that up last year, but I don't believe it's scheduled to be test fired because they, they don't have a client yet, but I don't believe it's scheduled to be test fired until the end of this year, the earliest. So, yeah. you know, but I would expect to see there, there's some also some political will around this that, um, I would expect to see more money given to rocket engine development. Um, there's already been money in that, but sort of when you 
don't have to worry about where you're getting your supply from. When you had the, you know, sort of the stopgap measure coming from Russia, there was less uh, impetus to use that money. So I would right. expect to see um, more money put into that because although we do have great options with the Atlas V still and, you know, the Vulcan in development, the Falcon is a great, you know, they're certified for national security payloads. Uh, with no Vulcan yet, I would imagine we would see more money into development for more diversity within rocket engines produced within the United States, um, perhaps even through um, to Biden's new Buy America uh, thing that he's launching, but also just for national security purposes, because I do think um, they will be loath to completely rely on the Falcon 9 for national security payloads. And so they're going to want to make sure that there are uh, additional options available beyond the operating timeline of the Atlas V and before Vulcan comes online. Well, we'll you know, I'm hoping you're right. But uh, again, th- does does Northrop Grumman actually even want to get into the business of developing their own booster at this point? I know they did have one in the hopper, um, Omega, but that one did not get any um, Air Force contracts and they had to abandon the uh, Well, I'm not plan. sure. Yeah, I'm not sure that Northrop would jump into that, but I imagine to see Blue Origin accelerate perhaps some of their their uh, their development. I would expect to see the the pressure on them. Of course, Aerojet Rocketdyne. So I, I would expect. I would just expect to see more more diversity within the U.S. launch market. Um, but you know, you never know because it is it is somewhat of a crowded market and customers are limited, even though it doesn't seem like that. Um, you know, it, it, the reality is, is that it's quite expensive to launch things to space. So the cut, the commercial base for that outside of governments is, is quite narrow. Right. So that, 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 but now that begs the question, what happens to Cygnus? Because right well, now here's, that's, here's that, the interesting thing that uh, I have to give full credit to Kat for bringing this to our attention before the start of the show is that we are essentially in a catch 22 with the space station with Cygnus, because right now we've said that if Russia says we're not going to boost the space station, tests are underway to show that Cygnus can, if Cygnus can, that's great. The problem then is you can't get Cygnus up there beyond April of next year because of the one eighty ones. Now we have seen after the orb three disaster that you can launch a Cygnus spacecraft aboard an Atlas V. But remember, two things. One, the Atlas V also uses Russian engines, so they're not getting any more. And secondly, the Atlas V is at the end of its lifespan, so we don't know how many Atlas parts they have that haven't already been sold, sitting around, laying around, ready to be put together for a spare Cygnus launch. Well, to Exactly. Just... I think you, could, you would well, see here... If I can just interject one thing in, 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 in that conversation, Cygnus has already proven that it can boost the, the International Space Station. It, it did during, I, want, I think it was either, um, I think it might have been OA-9, where it did it actually performed perform that task and did, did it well. This is the first time it's actually been assigned to do it. And this is the first time that officially... Northrop Grumman's able to go ahead and put that in as a service as a service 
for uh, for NASA. So um, Cygnus has already proven that. Yeah. But just to go back to Sawyer's point here about um, Cygnus doesn't have a vehicle and, and we know that it can go on an Atlas V, but of course we then have the same concerns with the Atlas V. I think that you may see if it becomes an issue and that we're going to need Cygnus, you may see even some shuffling of payloads um, if that happens. So um, I don't think there's concern about Atlas V being able to meet out the end of its operational lifespan. There's enough engines and enough things built. What you could see is shuffling of payloads. Um, So perhaps, uh, of course, because making sure that the ISS is boostable and staying in orbit, not coming down to Earth and, you know, living up to its operational time frame, uh, could end up shifting a payload to uh, perhaps... uh, ULA could push a, a non-time dependent payload to a Vulcan launch later. You could see some shifting of some payloads to a Falcon to, to free up an Atlas V, or you might even look at, um, they might even look at how do you get a Cygnus on top of a Falcon 9. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of different options. There's even, you know, some European uh, Ariane launch vehicles, perhaps that they could look at um, for, for Cygnus. So there's a lot of options. The great thing is, is that, um, you know, there's never a great time for something like this to happen, but it happening now is much different than this happening five years ago because the launch comp- the the landscape of launch capabilities within the United States and even for our partners is is vastly different than it was, you know, five, ten years ago. I will say I see shuffling of payloads. I don't see Cygnus flying on Falcon 9. Yeah, I, I doubt that would happen, but you know, you never know because it it's going to depend on on what comes up. But um, but yeah, I think shuffling of payloads is the first thing that would happen, um, and then you would see you know what could happen next. Because I I, I don't see Northrop Grumman giving their their primary competitor in in the in the cargo uh, business you know the the keys to the kingdom. I just don't see it. Well, I don't think that it would even, even if they did fly a Cygnus on, on a Falcon 9, I don't think that that would be sort of a giving a keys to the kingdom situation. I think that would be a very specific, like, this is necessary for the continued safe operation of the ISS. So I still um, think uh, from, I a, from a corporate standpoint, I, th- I, I, from a corporate standpoint, I, th- you know, it, it's yeah, but like, you have to realize it's not a corporate decision at that point. It would be a, a U.S. government decision and you have to fulfill that contract and you have to have safe operation of space. I don't think it's going to be necessary because I think that there's better options, especially in regards to shuffling payloads to free up an Atlas V, which we know can successfully launch a Cygnus to station, which would probably be the preferred because if you've had proven success in the past, but that doesn't mean that, you know, where those payloads get shifted, probably uh, ULA has the capacity to shift a few payloads off into Vulcan. And that would be the first thing to see, but you know, you never know. So I think it's just important to mention that there, that there are other options here. Yeah, I mean, Cygnus has already shown that it's that it's you know booster agnostic. Uh, it, it you know that they were after Orb three. You know, I I remember David Thompson burning the phones. You know, trying to find out you know who could who could take uh, his bird to space, and and they just settled on on ULA uh, because they've had good experience with ULA in the past uh, with getting other. Uh, you know, orbital sciences type satellites on that bird. So, 
I, which I think was probably the real reason why they they, they opted to for for Atlas V. But uh, yeah, I not to you know beat beat the horse senseless here, Kat. I, I really do agree with you that I think we'll probably see shuffling of payloads. And I do want to point out the Roscosmos statement in regards to the engine situation, and this one has uh, spawned some ridicule. And uh, if we go back to Dmitry Rogozin, who on Russian television said of the situation, "quote." We can no longer supply the U.S. with our rocket engines that are the best in the world. Let them fly on something else like their broomsticks or whatever, close quote. Keeping in mind that there are companies in the United States that do launch rockets with their own engines and that currently have orbital capabilities, say, oh, I don't know, Falcon 9. <laughs> yes. so just just want to throw that out there that that was their statement. And no, we have not forgotten about SpaceX and SpaceX's role in all of this as well in that. They build their own, essentially everything, so they are not dependent on Russian parts. Yeah, the the other thing too on that is uh, there was a Starlink launch this past week, and uh, Mr. Musk and his usual flourishes uh, wrote uh, uh, a back to uh, Mr. Uh, Rogozin and to everybody else with a picture of that launch, basically saying, "Yep." America's broomstick works or something along those lines. So he was like, yeah, bring it. (laughs) Exactly. And I mean, Elon has said that his concern right now at the moment is hacking among from Russia of Starlink and things like that, because uh, we should note that uh, Elon Musk and the Ukrainian government did share images of the fact that Elon Musk and Starlink have sent over receivers to Ukraine so that they have a more reliable internet source that they can access within the country. And there is concern still now, and Elon has said, of Russian hackers attempting to hack or stop those signals uh, of Starlink as well. So just putting that out there as well. Yeah, you can, and and jamming um, those satellites would not be a would not be hard to do in you know knowing um some of the things i know due to some of the professional stuff i've gone through um setting up a jammer that would go ahead and jam that signal would not be uh, uh it would not be a difficult thing for the russians to do so they've really really got a they've really got the work cut out for them right and Rogozin has mentioned like in his first tweet storm back on february 25th about you know concerns over space junks without mentioning them basically calling out elon musk's starlink network but there is definitely concern that that is a target and elon says that there may be future delays to starship and starlink version 2 as they work to try and combat against these potential uh hacks if they aren't already underway yeah, I and mean, again, they've they've got their they've got their hands full, and uh, I'll I'll commend the company for for getting that material into Ukraine. Everybody was trying to figure out how the devil they did it, and Elon is not saying how or <laughs> or or even what what methods were used uh, to get that material in there. But it is now in in country over there, so. Congratulations to Mr. Musk for pulling that off. 
Yeah, I, I need to find some uh, straw or something that I can attach to the bottom of my Falcon 9 model in my office. <laughs> Make my own broomstick. There's actually a company out there right now, and, and I don't remember the, the name of it, but I, I think it's in my Twitter stream somewhere, um, that they actually do make America's broomstick, which it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a broomstick shaped like the Falcon nine and it's, it's a broom. Um, it costs about 20 bucks. And I believe, uh, what the, the end game is, is that, uh, uh, a significant portion of that, uh, once they start shipping is going to be going to relief organizations in dealing with, uh, Ukraine and, uh, you can, uh, select the organization that you want your portion to go to. And soon as, so once, once they start shipping, they'll send an email out to everybody that had, uh, bought the, uh, uh, the reserve copies of, of the broomstick and you can select, uh, which, um, which relief agency you want your portion to go to. So it's at least something, something good is coming out of that. So I got a question. Uh, this is not a statement on my part, but a serious question. Is there any historical uh, perspective that we can bring to the discussion from other times, perhaps that payloads required a mass reshuffling, rescheduling, rearranging due to a change in how payloads were to be managed? The only thing that comes to mind, Mark, um, was after, you know, in recent times anyway, was the CRS-7 and the Orb-3 accidents, um, plus also maybe the Columbia and, and Challenger accidents later on. I was just going to say, in terms of getting crew to the space station, Columbia was a, a big factor in that. While that mission, STS-107, did not go to the space station it did ground the shuttle for two to three years, which increased the reliance on the Russian Soyuz to get crew up. But that was also the beginning of a point where payloads that were planned to routinely be uh, taken to orbit on the shuttle, worked at in orbit with the shuttle, became expendable launch vehicle payloads. And I guess that I do want to make a point. The point is that I don't remember, but it I doubt that that was a simple process. I, I imagine it required a, a, a massive uh, consideration of engineering and planning and, you know, hardware availability and all kinds of complex things. And, you know, perhaps that relates to today. I agree. I think it's, it's not going to be an easy undertaking to sort of to do this, but I do think there are more options today than there were during during those those periods, which is which is a good thing. Exactly, and I mean, you know, we've had to deal with joint cooperation, things like Mir. There was also the point in time where there was a crew member from the Soviet Union who was in space, and then the Soviet Union collapsed, and there was the whole issue of getting him home as well. So there's you know smaller excerpts from history of it, but I think this might be the largest factor uh, i think because as we mentioned of how many different vehicles and opportunities there are now whereas back then it essentially it was 
you launch with shuttle, you launch with Soyuz, or you launch with um, ULA. That was pretty much it back at, during 2003 in the era of post-Columbia. And post-Challenger, there was nothing. I mean, that, that was the one that really, really pointed out that we may be, you know, these evolved expendable launch vehicles were maybe a good thing and because we were we were moving off of those and and throwing everything onto the shuttle and and maybe that was it it demonstrated the uh the the faulty logic in that in that uh in that whole plan right and and there are still other companies that are relying upon russian soyuz to kind of act as their eelv in a way and it's not just Starlink satellites. We're talking also here about OneWeb, which is very similar to Starlink in its goal of satellite internet. Those currently launch aboard uh, Russian uh, Soyuz rockets. And as of right now, there was a OneWeb launch that was scheduled for today's recording date, March 5th. Obviously, that launch did not happen. The main reason being is that obviously there was concerns over what Russia was doing, and then Russia sent out two stipulations, basically saying that they had to guarantee that uh, they would not be using those OneWeb satellites for uh, anything related to national security, and that uh, Great Britain or the United Kingdom would basically pull out of the whole program. Which, if you yeah, like that was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, if you think that's happening, I got a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. But, yeah, right. And it, you know the heck of it was is is if, if Sawyer you've been you've been following Mr. Rogozin's tirades a little bit closer closely more than I have. Um, he basically said, "All right, I'm giving you two days." Well, the problem with that was the day after that that ultimatum was given, OneWeb basically said, "You know, we're pulling the plug. That's it." And, uh, you know, Rogozin basically continued to go on his tirade about everything. And everybody was like, you know, dude, they just decided they were going to go ahead and pull the plug on this. Uh, finally, to much fanfare, they took the, uh, the Soyuz vehicle down that was supposed to launch the uh, the OneWeb uh, satellites, and it, it actually turned into you know a, a huge propaganda uh, show for uh, Rogozin and for Roscosmos at that period of time. Uh, you know the workers. First off, the workers went ahead and covered the U.S. flag and the I believe that there was a there was a French flag on on the on the fairing or whatever whatever it was, um, and leaving the, the Indian flag up because India had not, you know, basically abstained from, uh, from the whole thing that happened in, in the UN with reference to this, this whole thing. Um, so that was a big propaganda, uh, opportunity with the covering of, of all the, all the flags. And then finally they took the, the, uh, the vehicle down and towed it back. And there were, you know, little V's painted on the side of all the apparatus that basically took that out there back over to the pad by the, by the workers basically saying, yeah, see, you know, we're all, we're all in for, for, for Russia. So, um, it, it was a great propaganda coup, if you really want to call it that. But it 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 
basically says, okay, you know, we're just not going to be in the business of launching. Uh, we're not going to be in the business of launching uh, commercial satellites anymore. Um, so we're actually seeing the disintegration of that option uh, right before our very eyes. The other thing, too, is I don't know what's really going to happen to those satellites. Are they hanging on to them? Well, as of right now, uh, the official report is that they were uh, brought back to a hangar and an assembly testing facility at Baikonur. So right. that's that's where they are sitting currently. And in a statement, the company says, uh, quote, Arian Space will work with its partners to ensure the well-being of the goods and means currently in Baikonur and that they are in close contact with customers and French and European authorities to, quote, best assess all the consequences of this situation and develop alternative solutions, close quote. Yeah, I mean, they've already, I mean, in OneWeb, too, I think they've already paid in advance for five launches, if I'm not mistaken on that. Right, and I should point out here that while all the OneWeb satellites launch on Soyuz, they are not all out of Russia or Kazakhstan. They have launched from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. They have launched from uh, the new Russian site as well. Uh, but they also launch out, or Vostokny, that's the one I'm thinking of. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they also launch out of the uh, spaceport in Karoo, French Guiana. They basically have Soyuz there ready to launch as well. Although now Roscosmos has pulled every single one of its workers from that plant in South America and brought them back to Russia. So there, the stuff is there. The people are not. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've announced, too, they are suspending operations at Koru. And that also basically shuts down an avenue for uh, Ariane Space uh, to, to launch on, uh, on Soyuz because they, they have a Soyuz launch pad out there and Ariane Space kind of does their thing with um uh with the uh with the Soyuz out there as well uh they kind of europeanize it and and put it out there on the pad uh but that's also now reduced their options as well because i'm sure they had launches lined up that were supposed to go on that booster and now that they're also in a scramble mode trying to figure out what to what to do next Along that lines, the European Space Agency actually discussed this in releasing a statement of basically ending all of their current cooperation with Soyuz operations uh, out of French Guiana. And in their statement, they said regarding the launch campaign, campaign from Karoo, quote, we take note of the Roscosmos decision to withdraw its workforce. We will consequently assess for each European institutional payload under our responsibility the appropriate launch service based notably on launch systems currently in operation and the upcoming Vega C and Arian 6 launchers. So it sounds like they're going to do their best to try and maybe get some of these launched on an Arian 5, or as they mentioned, once they're up and running, the Vega C and Arian 6. Yeah, and they're also, as you pointed out, they're also kind of in, in shuffle mode, and that's not the only thing impacting ESA. You know, and 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 the Europeans. There are other things going on, including, sadly, um, their their Mars rover mission. Right, that's ExoMars. Uh, they mm -hmm. were planning to launch with Russia on that mission in 2022. 
Uh, ESA now saying regarding that program, quote, the sanctions in the wider context make a launch in 2022 very unlikely. ESA's director general will analyze all the options and prepare a formal decision on the way forward by ESA member states. So right now that mission is in jeopardy. There's a couple missions now that are in jeopardy as a result of this, I believe. Yeah, Kat, you, we, we, we were kind of reviewing these um, beforehand. So there are, you know, if you want, you know, go ahead and, and, and throw those out there. Um, so just, I was going to say, just in regards to XMRs, it's interesting. I wonder if um, ESA will come back to the U.S. and come back to NASA to see if there'll be some, uh, maybe an ability for them to jump into that. Because as you probably all remember, we were previously involved in that mission and then pulled out ourselves. Um, so it'd be interesting for for to see if that um, that takes off. And I think that we all we already mentioned a few of the other ones that I had. Did we mention the uh, mission to um, Saros Kamas is ceasing collaboration on Venera D, which is the planned for launch in 2029, which is one of the three Venus missions. Um, also, we already talked about Erosita, I think. And I'm not sure if there was, I can't recall right off the top of my head I have to go back through my notes to look, but, but yeah, I mean, it's a lot. There's, this isn't just sort of, you know, what's going on in the ISS. This, this is affecting a lot of, a lot of things um, in terms of science and the science community. And, and some of these things will just be lost, um, you know, and, and that's not just because, you know, as, as we said with the ISS, just because like Ross Commons was involved doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, humans behind every single one of these missions. So these, you know, getting selected, having your, your mission selected and, and developing that is a huge thing for any primary and principal investigator. And then to lose it because of something like this, it's heartbreaking. I mean, it's just one of the many, many heartbreaking things that are happening right now in this war. Um, you know, we were. What was the other thing we were talking earlier about? Um, losing not just spacecraft, but losing aircraft as well. Yes, uh, one of the largest aircraft in the world was destroyed by the Russians, and that is the Antonov An two twenty five, better known as Maria. And uh, if you're not aware. It originally at one point helped carry the Russian space shuttle known as Buran. It was kind of the equivalent of the NASA 905 shuttle carrier aircraft, but much, much bigger and more recently even was used to help ferry uh, supplies, PPE, personal protective equipment, and other basically important necessities during the COVID-19 pandemic. And it is now laying in multiple pieces with a warhead pictured right in front of it. Yeah, and my, my heart broke. <laughs> my heart absolutely broke looking at that. Yeah, I remember I was looking at the images, you know, and looking at the video on Twitter, and it's just, there's so much senseless loss. It's really hard um, to, to look at this because it's on so many levels, right, that, that something like this is happening. So we're looking at the war in Ukraine and what's happening to all, you know, the millions of people in Ukraine who are negatively affected by this, the people who've lost their lives, you know, the children who are grew up in, in uncertain homes. And of course, this isn't new. This happens with every war. I mean, we just saw this um, happen in Afghan. It's been happening in Syria, Yemen, you know, th this happens all over the world. And, and certainly I'm 
just heartened to see the response to Ukrainian refugees and hope to see that response going forward for refugees from other conflicts. But, you know, there's other loss that's just so senseless and so ridiculous. And so losing an aircraft like this that was doing so much um, to support the recovery from the pandemic or, you know, losing these missions that that would tell us incredibly important things that we need to know about life in our universe or evolution in our universe in terms of, um, you know, how, how did we come to be here? What life could other planets have supported? What, what are the ge- geologic processes on other planets? All these incredible questions that are important to us that inform our life. It's, it's just a lot of senseless loss. It's really, it's really difficult. One of our, um, um, you all will be familiar with Craft Last Cassie, who has been on our show um, and associated with us for a long time. But I remember she she uh, about a week ago, I think, retweeted someone who put a mash meme, and it was you know Hawkeye talking uh, about you know war, and he's like, it's just this moment that like the people who are affected by war aren't the you know aren't the sinners because there's the the meme was like you know war is hell and then hawkeye asked the father and he's like well you know hell is for sinners and he's like well you know the war and hell are different because in hell you know you least deserve to be there but in war so many innocent people are hurt and it's just it's looking at this it's just one of those things where you sort of want to um you know, reach out and ask people, check on your friends, ask, are you doing okay? Because, you know, even seeing these traumatic and, you know, images can be difficult. And we've already been dealing with a lot of trauma over the last two years with the pandemic and uh, many other things, borders closures and being stuck apart from families, losing people you love. And then you sort of add something onto this. It, It can be a tough time for a lot of people. So it's like, I know I sort of started this, this little, um, uh, portion of me speaking, talking about the scientists who have lost their missions and the principal investigators, but it really just, just makes me think that when we look at this and we see all these things, I mean, just we're focused on space. We're looking at just one industry, one small part of everything that goes on in the world that is affected so significantly by this. And the thing is, is that there's so much of this, right? It's not just space. It's uh, healthcare. It's defense, it's immigration, it's so many different things. So if you just think about this, and, and and like I said, we're focusing on one small part of it, and you can just see the incredible impacts that just in this one small sector and, and you know, something that we're all very interested in is affecting and that just ripples out across so many different sectors. Um, and it's just hard, right? So that's, that's my little, little, uh, soapbox for the episode i feel like i always get on some sort of soapbox every episode and so (laughs) this is my little (laughs) this is my little soapbox for the episode is that um it's it's difficult right you just look at this and there's just a there's a lot of a lot of loss a lot of it is very senseless it's unnecessary and it just it makes me very angry but also reminds me just to, to check in with the people that i that i care for and make sure everyone's doing okay and all of our listeners i care for you so i hope that you are all doing okay just to add something real fast too, with with that particular aircraft, it was a source of national pride for everyone in Ukraine. And seeing it like that, you know, it it brought a. I noticed there was a lot of activity locally in Ukraine about about that, and you know, a lot of people were were 
heartbroken and, and in tears over it. And a lot of other individuals were more defiant and basically saying, we will rebuild that aircraft. We will build another one and, and call, call it the same thing to go ahead and, and, and basically make tribute to that, that particular aircraft, because it was a, it was a, a source of national pride for, for Ukraine, but not only, you know, for, it was one of the biggest birds in the sky and, and to see it, you know, cracked like an eggshell like that. Yeah. I mean, it brought me to, to tears because I know that, uh, uh, a, that it was a source of pride and, and B that it was doing far more than carrying Baran around these days. Yeah, it really is. Well, it's like what what did the the Kiev Post say on Twitter? They can burn a plane, but will never take away the dream of Ukrainians. Yes, you know you just have to admire. That. You have to admire the spirit of the Ukrainian people in this in this conflict, and um, yeah, but a Amen. lot have to have been affected. Yes. So to to just kind of. I'm going to throw a question out there for for the entire group. Where do you think we go from here? What does the future look like for the Russian space program? Is there a future? Or are we seeing it implode before our very eyes? And after all is said and done, will it still be there? I mean, as we know, it's been, uh, it's been facing issues for a while, at least the civilian side of, of, their space program has, um, shall we say, been a bit of a neglected child of Russia for some time. So I certainly think that um, it's it's going to be hard to recover from this. Sawyer, what do you think? I'm not sure what the future holds. I mean, the big thing now, of course, for me was the International Space Station. That was the biggest sign of cooperation and partnership and basically that was i think why the u.s still relied upon roscosmos i see that relationship going away at this point i think the u.s is going to very much be under the mindset of if we can launch it ourselves we're going to launch it ourselves if we can't let's go to isa you know go to arian space and basically try and make them the absolute last resort like we talked about crew five roscosmos buying seats on crew dragon I think once we get Starliner up and running, I could see a point where NASA says, you know what, there's our dual redundancy, two separate vehicles. Great. We don't need the Soyuz anymore. Our dual redundancy is going to be uh, CST-100 and Crew Dragon. So I think this will be the breaking point. I don't think we're going to see it instantly, but I think over the next year or two, uh, the the wheels are already moving. The gears are in motion to essentially end a couple decades long partnership now with the U S and the Russian space programs. And I think at this point it's going to be a, we will work with them if it's a last resort rather than a go-to. Do you see the, um, the Russian side of the ISS basically either shutting down or, or separating? I mean, right now it's guaranteed through 2024. So if they do anything before that, then that's a whole nother can of worms here. But I, I don't see them separating it. I could see them maybe shutting it down and we just close the hatch and 
part our separate ways, but I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. If we're being brutally honest, I think there's going to be enough pressure from the scientific community across the globe to say, look, by having that second half, we're doubling the amount of science in a way. I mean, it's not exactly double because of all the different laboratories on the U.S. side, but we're losing so much more capability to get science that I think maybe Russia will say, okay, we'll hold out till 2030, but no longer. That's it. You guys are done in 2030. We're done in 2030. Let's go our separate ways after that. To just interject something real quick on the U.S. side, we're also talking Kibo, which is the Jackson module, which is probably the biggest module in the ISS, and the Columbus module, which is um, which is the ESA contribution to the ISS. In addition to the Destiny Lab, which is the U.S. As, as well. So you've got three to one, essentially, in terms of scientific stations, but that 25% more science. I mean, that was the whole big thing. And we talked to multiple heads of the ISS program throughout the years of the key importance of once we got Crew Dragon and uh, we got CST-100 and all these other U.S.-built crew capsules up and running was that we could increase the number of people on station to seven. And that extra person from six to seven was going to make a dramatic difference alone in science. So we're talking one person here making a huge increase in science. Imagine cutting off 25% essentially of your scientific capability. Sure, you'll have more people, but you have less room to run experiments, fewer experiments that you're running. I think that would devastate the scientific community and would destroy pretty much a large portion of the purpose of the ISS, which is joint cooperation to benefit humanity on Earth and to benefit as we all work towards moving beyond low Earth orbit. Yeah, hey Mark, what do you chime in here? What do you what do you think about about all this, and and where do you think is there going to be a future here? Uh, choose your friends and associates carefully. Be willing to change, and don't expect that any change is going to be permanent. That's actually some wise thoughts. I mean, especially Mark choosing your friends carefully. Mark is always giving us wise thoughts. I would say, like, for me, one thing that I worry, um, I mean, we always knew the International Space Station was going to come to an end. It can't it can't function forever. It, it couldn't function forever. Um, and there's been sort of a lack of a clear successor to what is the clear successor to the International Space Station. And I worry with sort of the loss of that symbol of international cooperation in space, what happens to space as a domain? Um, and of course, you know, as a political scientist and, and someone who who did a bit of this sort of thought process of, of working out, like, what is the paradigm that's going to going to rule international relations in space? How do how do different nations work together? What rules are respected? What's the rules based orders in space? Is there a rules based order in space? Um, my concern is with that loss of the, the symbol of what the International Space Station is and the personnel in space, does space become more hostile? When you have, uh, you know, space stations that are more national-based rather than based on international cooperation, does that give less um, incentive to keep peace in space? Um, and that, to me, is something that I that that I find, you know, a little concerning. And we are moving towards a, a militarization of space, and it's certainly something that the U.S. has contributed to. 
um, as have other nations, uh, probably most notably China and Russia. But for me, that that sort of the uncertainty of the future of the ISS and the lack of a clear successor for the International Space Station and, and what the International Space Station, not just as in a, a place for important science, which is, you know, the, the type of research done on the ISS cannot be done anywhere else and its importance cannot be overstated. But the loss of the symbol as well is very important. And that concerns me because, you know, this, this is a form of soft diplomacy. And, and when you lose your, your um, soft sticks, you go to the hard ones and those hard ones don't turn out well for everyone. I hate to say this, but you're, you're, first off, you kind of stole my thunder a little bit because it's exact, that was exactly my next question. That was number one. And uh, number two, um, it, it's kind of funny. Ted Cruz had pointed out that same thing during, a, um, during one of the, the past hearings as the, the ISS serving as a, a source of soft power. And he was concerned about the Chinese station up there and no clear successor and so on. So you, as much as I hate to say this, guess what? You're in his camp on that one. Well, even a broken clock can be wrong sometimes. It can be right sometimes. (laughs) All political views are expressed consently of those individuals. (laughs) Yes. yes, my My own personal view is that sometimes... Even me and the broken clock can be on the same page. Um. But my, because my thought through all of this is, so let's assume that this cooperation ends. You currently have China who says they plan to launch five or six more modules this year, which again, take that as you will, to their space station to try and complete it within the next year. So now you would have the International Space Station, which would be sans Russia, Say Russia decides now to use some of those parts to create their own space station, or they just separate their half and say, we now have our own station. So you then have a Russian space station, a Chinese space station, the International Space Station, which is now 15 instead of 16 countries cooperating. And now you have all these private companies that are now saying that they want to create their own space stations. You have missions like Axiom 1, which is set to be the first private crew to go up to the International Space Station scheduled for later this month. And you're talking five, six different space stations now for all these different countries and companies that are accomplishing either simultaneous tasks or something where it would be great to share the information and it won't be shared amongst the scientific community. That's my concern is that we literally have all these resources condensed and combined into one space station for a reason so that we can all do the research together and share the results together and impact all of humanity together rather than, oh, we're doing the same experiments on six different space stations. And the only way we find out is once each one publishes their own results and go, oh, we could have done this together and gotten different science done and learned something else instead. Okay, my turn. Go, Mark. So what do you think? Uh, and this is me not knowing. How do you think uh, research and collaboration and cooperation happens in other fields, like let's say oceanography or atmospherics and weather or geology, uh, volcanism, uh, all manner of various things that that uh, countries that can are have been actively looking at and researching and studying? 
is it possible that we are going to see space become more normalized to kind of mirror the way research and science goes on around the world in many other fields? I think you look at Antarctica and how, you know, there's there's nationalized research stations in Antarctica. Um, and I think that's what you're going to see in space if you have sort of, you know, I mean, we already have sort of the, the Chinese space station, the International Space Station. Um, and, you know, of course, China is taking partners with space station to just make it make it more international. And, and there's a possibility, you know, perhaps Russia would like to build a closer relationship with them. And I think that they have um, done some partnerships. But I think that you you're going to see something it's um, space currently is a bit too complex to access to do the sort of type of research that you would see in other fields like volcanology, geology, etc. Um, but I think that you would see um, more competition in research. So, you know, maybe someone trying to get to a breakthrough first or discover something first, that could definitely happen. Um, but I think what you do is when you have less funding, because since you're not pulling resources, um, you're going to see smaller projects, smaller research projects, um, perhaps. But I think the, the best analogy to look for is going to be space research will probably start to, <clears throat> excuse me, space research will probably start to resemble something about as the research we do in Antarctica. And to Sawyer's point too, uh, with these commercial stations that are coming up, uh, NASA is already looking at how they could they could be really entrenched into these things. They're not going to be the anchor clients as as this panel and everybody out there knows that, but they are going to want to be, you know, part of a lot of these commercial stations and. How does the ISS National Lab fit into all of that? And that is also under discussion, too. So a lot of the work that was being done on the ISS is just simply going to be transitioning to these these commercial stations, whatever would be best to accommodate all of that. But, you know, with the U.S. context just fits into NASA's plan. NASA has been trying to leave low Earth orbit for so long um, and is is making those steps to, to sort of transition its research and its uh, major use of resources to deep space exploration. So I think you're going to see, you know, perhaps this, you know, sunsetting of the International Space Station as a as a national research lab, because it may even become a commercial research lab, and it does some commercial research even now, um, you just may see sort of research priorities that are funded by our, you know, civilian space agency uh, in the United States shift towards deep space exploration and deep space priorities um, as they also seek to bolster low Earth, low Earth orbit research through commercial partnerships. Um, and this is, you know, you look around the world and see other, um, other space agencies, how they, how they handle their research. Um, you know, here in Australia, uh, the Australian space agency really exists, uh, sort of differently than you would. It's, it's not completely analogous to NASA. They really exist to enable the private sector. Um, and it's about enabling private sector success in space transportation, space research and space exploration. Um, so I think that you just, as, as times change and as capabilities to access space become uh, 
more broad, you're going to see a shift in focus of where civilian agencies put their money and, and their resources. One of these days, Kat, I would love to go ahead and, and explore that more on this program as far as what, what Australia is doing and, and so on and so forth, because I think it's it, it's quite fascinating. But uh, Yeah, I mean, they just committed 65, is it 65 million? Can't remember, yeah. 65 million to, um, you know, to certain initiatives within the space sector. So there's certainly... You know, Australia is is really keen to enable their commercial space sector um, to achieve a lot, and and their their civil space agency is set up to, to enable private sector success. Um, so it'll be really interesting to to see what happens, and it's an it's an exciting time to sort of watch something grow. I was you know in Adelaide in 2017 when they announced the creation of the space agency. Some of my friends were involved in in both getting. IAC to Adelaide and and in lobbying the Australian government for their own civil space agency because as all of our listeners know Australia has been heavily involved in space and from the very beginning um, and you know so it's interesting to see and so certainly um, you know this episode has been somewhat somber as we as we have been talking about the effects of the the Russian war on Ukraine and space but also there there are reasons you know elsewhere around the world to look up and to have hope that, um, you know, there's some exciting things coming along uh, in in the space sector. So while I may um, sort of wonder and, and worry as a political scientist what's happening in space when it comes to sort of the military domain, there are certainly exciting things happening in the civilian and commercial domains. And I do want to point out that technically there is a future envisioned beyond the ISS, and that is the Lunar Gateway Project. So it's not like NASA is done completely with space stations. Whether you consider Gateway to really kind of be a space station as opposed to a layover point, take that as you will. But in a way, that's that's the next space station is at lunar orbit as opposed to low Earth orbit. So it's not like we're completely out of the game here. And that seems to primarily be, again, a U.S. with maybe some European cooperation more so than fully international. So it's already starting to lean in that direction as we go beyond low Earth orbit. I think the thing that I would be most sad to see happen is to break the continuous human occupation, if occupation is the best word, uh, the continuous human presence of uh, of people from planet Earth in space. Um, so that's what I'm hoping doesn't happen because it is certainly something to be proud of as a species that we have for decades now continually had a member um, of our of our species in space which is I think to me that would be if we don't plan for how do we can you know um, stay here and, and establish ourselves and and continue the research that that continuous human presence in space enables that would be really disappointing to me so I'm, I'm hoping that we never see that point where space is empty again, at least space is empty of human life. And the last thing I want to see is that flag that's been up on Building 30 at the Johnson Space Flight Center come down. The the flag, the U.S. flag um, above, being hoisted above Building 30 uh, indicates that there is a U.S. astronaut on orbit or on mission. And it would be a sad day 
uh, to see that come down because it has been there permanently now for quite some time. And that's the last thing I think anybody really wants to see. Agreed. And that is coming from the selfish U.S. perspective on our side, I think, as well. But absolutely. I mean, space exploration has always been the place where we look up for to the future. And I think what hurts the most about this is of all the astronauts I've met and all the astronauts that we've had on the show and that I know each of us have individually met and talked to, one of the biggest things that they always point out is the orbital perspective. The idea of going up into space and seeing, A, how fragile our planet really is, how just this thin blue line of atmosphere is the only thing that's keeping everything that ever was, ever is, and for now ever will be alive. And in addition to that, the other thing that you hear most people talk about is that when they look down at the Earth, they see the beauty of it and they don't see borders. All of these lines that you see on a map or a globe or Google Maps or whatever are made up. You go into space, there are none. And right now, that's not the case anymore. You can't see the lines physically, but those lines are somehow reappearing in the one place where it was always, we're in this together, this is for the betterment of humanity. And I think that is what hurts from the space side perspective. Obviously, it hurts dramatically when you look at the horrendous impact that it's having humanitarian-wise and on the people of Ukraine that are now being forced to flee the country or stay and fight. But from the spaceflight perspective itself, that the borders are becoming visible somehow. And, and not only that, that Sawyer, you know, you mentioned the, the, the astronauts that we've talked to and so on. They've spent time on the International Space Station. And one of the iconic pictures from the ISS is the entire crew gathered around the table in that wardroom, breaking bread, sharing dinner, you know, sharing Christmas dinner, sharing, you know, um, in in cultural rituals from each each other's nations, and it's it's going to be sad not to see that anymore. Um, if that indeed ends up being the case uh, because of, you know, one individual's nonsensical moves down here on planet Earth. This is um, just talking about that story. You just reminded me, and, and it's a little off topic, but I do want to give a plug for a book that is coming out next month called Sky Country that's written by um, – two women here in Australia, Carly Noon and Crystal DiNapoli, um, about the First Nations, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives of, of the sky as um, a sky country. And it's just, you know, having living here in Australia, and there's a very unique connection that that our First Nations people have um, to land and sky that that is, um, you know, as, as the longest continuous living culture on earth. And so when we talk about not seeing borders or these things like having moved here, I'm, I'm gaining a new perspective on that. So I do want to say, um, you know, if, if sort of the, the over, um, the overview effect, and you think about that and you've read the books where astronauts talk about how that's shaped their perspective on things back on earth, then I would certainly recommend when it comes out to, to grab a copy of sky country, because, um, to hear the, the first nations perspective on cultural connection, and scientific connection to the sky is really 
fascinating and something that you know I've privileged to be to have been able to hear since I've been here. Um, so a little off topic, but I did uh, just Sawyer when you're talking about that, it just immediately that book jumped to my mind. So it comes out at the end of next month, and I would highly recommend anyone who's interested in in the overview effect to also um, consider the effects um, or consider the perspective uh, from nations who have been here for, you know, 70,000 years. So it's just, it's, it's something that I would highly recommend and I'm looking forward to getting my own copy and reading it. Might be interesting too, Kat, to have those folks here at some point to talk sure. about the book. And, and because I'm, I'm a big fan of, and, and I know we're going to get on a tangent and I'm sorry, but when I was a planetarium uh, presenter, we used to do cultural presentations on what different cultures saw in the night sky and uh we we we've discussed this several times here in fact we had a guest here on on this program talking about that um on uh, about what one culture saw saw in the night sky too so it it would be really really cool to get that that kind of perspective and i think that you know a lot of this that we've been talking about with international space station is like what is the cultural heritage of space and how does this conflict harm that cultural heritage of space so i think you know these these things are all interconnected um it's you know maybe we don't think about it in that way it's it's you know everyone who listens to this show loves space we're space nerds we're we're geeks we love to chase rockets you know we're very interested in this um and we sometimes forget that for a lot of people, they're not as interested in space. They don't see the impact. I mean, you all know that I'm always here talking about like, you know, from the U.S. perspective, this is your tax money. You know, when we talk about the success of even these private companies, a lot of times the taxpayer is still a huge uh, uh, input in that because the government supports and funds a lot of space. And that's not just sort of International Space Station. That's, you know, lots of satellites, that's research into space, that's military uses of space. You know, your your tax money is paying for space, but um, the average person isn't going to see their daily connection to space. Um, and so I think it's important to, to see those connections between what happens on the ground and what happens on Earth to, to how that's influenced by the technology or um, research or discoveries that are made in space. Even though that, that space these days impacts, <laughs> impacts every facet of your life at this point, including. Yeah, but most people don't realize that. Most people yeah. don't think like, you know, if, if not for a satellite in the sky, I wouldn't be using, you know, getting my way on Google maps or, you know, I wouldn't have this. And so people, you know, it doesn't, it just doesn't, you know, connect for a lot of people, the, the impact of space, even like right now, I mentioned, um, we, I think on the pre-show, we're having crazy floods and crazy weather here in, in, in Australia and Queensland and New South Wales. And if not for space technology, it would be, you know, significantly more difficult for there to be accurate forecasts, um, to help warn people so that more lives aren't lost. So space is just, is really, really important. And, um, you know, what happens in space does impact our daily life. And we we should be more aware of that. And if you are a person who loves space, you know, when you talk to your friends and families and your politicians, if you're a person who likes to call your politicians, you know, let them know, like, space is important to me. And this is why, you know, because it impacts our daily lives. And it's going to be impacting facets of this conflict, too. Um, so, uh, it, it will be, this isn't the first time that space has played a key role, but it, it will be playing an even more 
interesting role in this particular conflict as well. Yeah, I mean, if you've been following any news coverage, there's a good chance most of the live pictures you're viewing are being beamed via satellite. There's all the satellite imagery that we're seeing of Russian forces advancing. There's the, uh, unfortunately, many of the uh, missiles and artillery can be guided by GPS, which again, is all satellite. Like we talked about earlier, Elon getting the Starlink satellite internet to the country to help the Ukrainians. I mean, this in entire ground-based attack is being guided on both sides by space. And like we talked about with the concerns already of hacking of communication satellites from both sides, I mean, all of this plays into what's happening on the ground. So even though it seems kind of odd to devote an entire show to how this is impacting spaceflight, it really is still impacting people on the ground, in particular those Ukrainians who are either staying and fighting or trying to flee for their lives. I think on that note, that might be a good spot to uh, bring this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thanks, Sawyer. And again, our heart breaks for everybody in Ukraine. And we're hoping that this conflict ends expediently and quickly and no more pain is is brought to bear on that uh, on that nation. So again, good night, and to all in Ukraine, all all the best. We're with you. Thank you as well for joining us, Dr. Kat Robinson. Very glad to be here, and, and as Jean said, our hearts go out to everyone um, who's been affected by by this, and and you are in our our thoughts. And um, also for me, uh, my heart is going out to everyone here in Australia who's dealing with loss of homes and with the floods and everything. Amen. Yes. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman, with your famous words of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, like Kat said earlier, every once in a while, a clock that's broken can be right. So I appreciate uh, the opportunity to share my thoughts. Thank you very much. <laughs> that you we know you're right more than twice a day mark you exactly <laughs> i was gonna say that it's at least twice an episode <laughs> <laughs> exactly and, and then and then going ahead and putting us us little whippersnappers in our place too sometimes <laughs> well thank you everyone for listening and again we do want to send our hearts out to all of the people of ukraine uh, thank you to all of the humanitarians that are out there trying to help the countries that are helping to take in all of these refugees. And if you are able to, we highly encourage you to support the organizations that are doing that humanitarian work on the ground and helping people through this horrific, horrific attack on Ukraine. We'd like to thank everyone for listening. Thank you for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are, and we stand with you, Ukraine.